This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. John 6, verses 60 through 71 says, Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are our spirit and our life, but there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the 12, you don't wanna go away too, do you? Simon Peter asked, answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have to come to believe. We have to come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the 12, because he was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, we are, we are humbled as we are reminded of something that our words say, but so often our hearts struggle to believe, um, that you indeed have the words of eternal life, that you indeed are not just our Lord, uh, you, you, you are our Savior, you deserve all honor, all glory. And yet, God, even though we sing it and we want to believe it and we want it to be true of our heart over and over again, Father, if we do not have your spirit, we are incapable of doing this on our own. And so, God, I pray that you would show yourself to be true, remind us of who you are, give us what it is that we need to be able to battle the temptation to spiritually desert, to spiritually run away, to even defect elsewhere. God, I pray that we not believe that it's up to us in our own strength and it's up to us in our own resolve to, to fix our own hearts. Father, will you melt our hearts, show us our desperate need for you, and then you and you alone meet it through the power of your word, through the illumination of your spirit. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good afternoon. Uh, welcome again to, to, to ICON. We have been in this series uh, through John for the last maybe couple months now almost, and really walking through just some really deep truths that John seems to bring out. We've been talking a good deal about the differences we see with John's gospel compared to the first three known as the synoptic gospels. And there are some specific things that John brings up that none of the other gospel writers address. And there's uh, one, one thing that, that really hit me as I was studying this particular passage, uh, something that I think all of us can connect with, something that we've all felt, if we've been honest, if we've been intellectually honest with ourselves about times when we doubt, 
times when we are struggling, times when we've been, been hurt. It, this question came up, and I think we see the answer here. Why, why is it that there are people who find themselves rejecting, deserting, or even defecting from the church and even Christianity as a whole? It's a deeper question than just folks just have to get it together. Folks just have to believe. There, there, there are deeper issues here, right? There's so many different ways where people are kind of flowing in and out of faith and then doubt and then struggle and then hurt and then encouragement. For some, it's certainly pain, it's hurt, it's heartbreak that they've received from those in ministry. For some others, uh, they've been hurt directly by sinful behavior, spiritual abuse, or maybe secondhand issues because of a, a moral or ethical failure on behalf of a leader. And they're like, that just really hurt my faith. It shook me up so bad. I just don't know if I can keep going. And in other cases, people desert because of unresolved doubts or maybe unanswered difficult questions. Right? Here's some questions. Things that I know for sure have been major kind of logical uh, quandaries that people have struggled with because they don't get an answer or the one that they want. What about alleged apparent contradictions in the Bible? What about Genesis and creation versus modern science? What about the logical problem of evil? Right? You, ever, you guys have heard this before, right? This, this logical problem that says, well, if God is all-loving and God is all-powerful, then how can you explain evil? You see, if he's all loving, that means he has to hate evil, which means he wants it gone, but it's not gone, which means he can't be powerful because if he was powerful enough, he would end it, right? These are philosophical questions that people have often struggled with. Maybe a question like that has caught you up. If everyone is loved by God, why doesn't he ensure that they all hear it? If God is sovereign over everything, do we have free will? What is free will? Those kinds of questions can really cause a lot of frustration, uh, a lot of issues. We don't have enough answers. And so I will not answer any of those for you today. <laughs> but I wanted that to be a case in point that there are legitimate questions and struggles that we should be wrestling through. But what about difficult questions for which the answers given are deemed undesirable or unsatisfactory? So we can, we can talk about the ones that there's like very much kind of amorphous answers to the question, but what about answers that are very solid, that are at least very clearly laid out, but you just don't agree with them, or you just don't like them? Maybe you prayed for something that you thought was God's will and for God's glory, but he didn't answer it favorably. Maybe there was something you believed was a promise in Scripture, and it didn't work out the way you hoped. Maybe you or someone you love have suffered a heart illness. Maybe it hindered you or hindered them from even doing work for the Lord. Maybe you were betrayed by a spouse or a friend that professed to be a Christian. Maybe your children, whom you've loved and have taught the fear and admonition of the Lord and his ways, and they have rejected God and you. And maybe in all those things, you're like, I... I don't know how I can hold on to this any longer because I've given X, Y, and Z and I don't feel like I'm getting a return on my investment. In other words, what do you do with your unmet expectations? Honestly, as, am I the only one as a Christian that feels like expectations didn't get met before? Thank you. Say that louder. <laughs> Because for many of us, depending on how we came to faith and what we've been told about our faith, there are expectations that are there. We're not even going to talk about in a minute, we will, uh, whether or not there are even fair expectations, but there are expectations nonetheless that I've held to and they go 
unmet. And here's what happens. Unmet expectations, they lead to disappointment. And disappointment can lead to distress. And distress can lead us to desertion. You see that? You have an expectation that doesn't go met. Now I'm really frustrated. I'm angry. I'm, 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 I'm very much frustrated because uh, I, I'm so disappointed because I thought a thing was going to happen. Now I'm distressed because I needed those things to happen. And I go so long without those things happening that I'm now like, I'm ready to give this up. I have to desert this. I can't do this anymore. So a better question is, how do you persevere in your faith when you either see things in Scripture or things in your own life experience that just don't make sense. What are you prone to do? Where is your heart prone to go? Another way of putting this is, how do we fight against spiritual desertion? How do we fight against that? Now, I was in the military, and obviously one of the things you learn when you're in basic training is the one thing that is unforgivable is desertion. You've been assigned to a certain place. You've been given a certain task. If you do not uh, hold your end of the deal, if you don't follow orders and exactly as they've been spelled out and you somehow shirk your responsibility and run the other way, there are very grave consequences, right? Because the idea is that you are part of this group, which means your mission doesn't matter. Their mission matters. Whether you agree with the mission or not, even if the mission itself is not even a good one, right? You may completely, fundamentally disagree with it. But one of the things that's kind of ingrained in is it's not your mission, it's someone else's. Your job is to fall in, right? So, so in other words, the way that they try to keep people from deserting is either A, get you to believe in the mission, or B, this is where it becomes completely unholy, threaten you and put enough fear in you to keep you from deserting. And see, neither of those things are what God calls us to do. Now, there are churches that will do that. Hey, my best way to get you to fall in line is to scare you into following, right? We've talked a lot about how that is never going to be sustainable because if I can scare you into it, I can find a way to scare you out of it. So there's got to be something more fundamental that holds us in place. So what do we do when we're tempted to spiritually desert these unmet expectations. I think that we see this played out very much. The author of Hebrews, we don't know who this author was, but the author reminded us, reminded the audience of their times and their faith when they were tempted to desert uh, following Jesus, right? They, they basically didn't want to follow him anymore. They were tempted because things were happening uh, for these particular Christians. Uh, they were being threatened. They were dealing with tons of prosecution, uh, persecution, uh, they were very much kind of being expected to revert back to some of the older Jewish ways of doing things, but they were uh, following Jesus now. And so if you re recall in Hebrews 10, uh, he puts it this way, verse 32 through 36. He says, Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathize with the prisoners and accept it with joy, the confiscation of your possessions, because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring confidence, which has a great reward. Here's the key. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. You need endurance. How do we find real endurance when we've got maybe legitimate things that are pressing on us? 
I mean, ultimately what we're seeing in this text is that the only antidote to spiritual desertion is faith in God's word and faith in God's son, both of whom are embodied in Jesus. Jesus is the very expression of God's every word. So belief in the person and the work and the words of Christ is the answer to spiritual disappointment, spiritual desertion, and spiritual defection. Our text today answers this question uh, exactly this way. If you remember where we are in, in John chapter 6, we're, we're kind of in the falling action after Jesus has fed uh, what some call 5,000. We've already kind of realized it's probably more like 20,000 when you count wives and children. But, but you've got this thousands of folks who have been fed, right? They've had this uh, incredible meal, this miracle meal. And then Jesus is in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he cl- makes these almost outlandish claims, being the bread of life, saying outlandish things like you cannot possibly get to the Father except through me. These outlandish claims that they're now having to hear. And, and at the moment they hear this, if you remember, after the meal happens, you, you, you realize that they started following him based on faulty expectations. We saw that, right? They, they, the miracle bread has been eaten. The miracle fish has been eaten. All these incredible things have happened. They've witnessed incredible miracles. And the, because the miracles were so uh, pronounced, they looked and said, He's got to be the Messiah I expected. And so they did what we do, right? We said this before. They started defining the Messiah by their faulty expectations. Well, he must be the kind of king that we want, the king that's going to give us political uh, uh, um, autonomy again. He's going to restore this physical kingdom of Israel again. He's going to, as we said before, make Israel great again. He's, that's the Messiah that I'm looking for. That's who I expect. So anything else he says that's not in line with that, I have to reject him. So they immediately grab him. Remember, they try to grab him and force him to be king, which is what we do, right? You're saying what I want to hear. You're creating the image that I want to have. You're giving me a country that I want. I want to force you to be this kind of a king. And Jesus realized that wasn't it, and he began to retreat, right? Remember, he kind of pulled back, and they couldn't find him because he realized that they had, but were holding him to an unhealthy, inaccurate expectation of what the Messiah was. And so they, they, they want freedom from the yoke of Rome. They want peace. They want prosperity. And what he's claiming is something different. He's, I'm here to be the very bread of life from heaven. See, so, so they heard something that didn't fall in line with what they were expecting, and it caused them to stumble. They they heard something that was not in line with what they expected, and it caused them to stumble. They started complaining and grumbling. He's already said that uh, they wouldn't believe what he says unless the Father draws them, yet another very controversial statement to make. Again, when we try to figure out, by the way, for the many of us here, the reason we stumble because we try to understand this idea of God's sovereignty and power over everything and free will, which is very difficult to understand. And on either side, we find ourselves stumbling because it does not fall in line with what I think it should be. It does not fall in line with what I think God should be like. So it causes us to stumble and complain and grumble. They did the same. Verses 43 and 44, he says, you guys aren't going to understand this unless the Father draws you first. Very controversial. Repeatedly said that the body and blood, his body and blood would bring life to the world. Incredibly controversial. 
They hear that in 48, verse 48, by verse 52, they're grumbling again. I just can't get with that. I don't understand. This Jesus is kind of weird. He's, he says some things that doesn't make sense, or I disagree, or I've got a deep theological or philosophical, philosophical study that I've done that tells you why this Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. That's when they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So all of that we saw last week, and he ends that, the very end of that uh, the, the very end of that passage, he's, he says that the one who eats this bread will live forever, talking about himself, talking about his body and his blood. And then you get to verse 60, and look at what it says. Therefore, as soon as, keep in mind, they've heard all these hard, controversial statements, things that are not in line with what they thought God should be, not in line with what they thought a Messiah should, should be like. They hear that, they see that. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? This is a difficult statement. What do you do with hard stuff? Like, what do you do with with hard truths? When I say hard truths, I don't just mean truths that are very difficult to to attain through intellectual acuity, right? I'm saying there are things that, it, it may not be that you can't get it with your mind, but maybe your heart just refuses to accept it because it's so out of step with what you expected from him. What do you do with hard truths? What do you do with truths that just don't make you feel good? Because this is where they are. They're, they're getting to these very hard places. And what Jesus shows us here and what John shows us here is that hard truths from God must be submitted to even when we don't understand them or don't like them. In other words, the litmus test for whether or not God is with you is not whether or not you like him. That's actually not how we judge it. Now, sadly, in our own in our own flesh, that's how we remake God is a God that I can agree with is a God I can follow. But that actually is not our option. You don't have the luxury of recreating a more palatable God and go, now that's the one I can follow. Because actually you're not following a God anymore. You're following yourself. It's okay to not understand. Don't get me wrong. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to, to even respond with confusion, but ensure that even though you're confused, that you're still teachable. In other words, Jesus, you you would have loved to see them go, Jesus, we're kind of confused. Like you said some hard stuff here, some stuff that just doesn't make sense. And I, he can take us being honest. I don't understand what you mean by this. We've always understood the Messiah to be this way, but you're saying something different. Help me understand that we're confused. Can you help us out here? But they don't necessarily do that. By the time you get to verse 63, you see Jesus kind of looking at them, or sorry, verse 61, you see Jesus looking, he knows in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, and he asked them, oh, does this offend you? It just feels so sarcastic to me, because because he knows what they're feeling, so he doesn't even start with kind of this kind of faux apology, like, oh, I'm really sorry this hurts your feelings, because we said that that's not a real apology, Remember? So he's not just like, I'm sorry this offended you. He's basically going, oh, does this hard truth offend you? Are you finding yourself like really having to deal with this emotional kind of undoing because of this truth? See, he knew they not only were confused, but their confusion led to complaining. That's actually one of the signs of a non-teachable spirit. 
Being confused is never bad, but moving from confusion to complaining is a sign of a lack of a teachable spirit. And he sees this because he's, oh, that, so now, because here's the thing, you can be confused, but it ought not uh, turn into complaining unless there's a heart thing that hasn't happened yet. And so he sees that, oh, you're, you're, you're confused, uh, and now it's moved to complaining, which shows a lack of a teachable heart, and now you're, oh, you're, you're offended now. And, he, and if you look at how he responds, my words are spirit and are life. He doesn't even really try to get to the point of the confusion. He doesn't really get to explaining everything he even means. He just kind of looks and says, the, the heart posture that you have right now says that you trust in your understanding more than the words I'm giving you that are confusing you. You're trusting in you far more than you trust in me. And here's the thing. You're offended, which is crazy, because the words that are coming out of my mouth are necessary for actual life. And you're offended by words that actually bring life. Here's the thing. And I have to say this really carefully. Being offended is not necessarily proof that you're right. Listen, when you are offended, here's what happens. We, if we're offended... We automatically think, because my feelings are hurt, I now have a badge that says I must be in the right because I'm offended. And we're not saying that being offended is something to be scoffed at. Sometimes there's legitimate offense that has to be dealt with. Here's the best way to think about it. The things that offend you should be things that offend God. If you're offended by something else, immediately ask yourself, am I mad about things that God's mad about? Because, because you know, anger in and of itself is not a sin. We realize that, right? The Bible says be angry, but... Sin not, right? It says a part of the spiritual growth is to be slow to anger, not, not getting angry. So anger, sometimes we just immediately kind of broad brush and, be, and, and say things like, well, don't be angry. That must be proof that something is wrong or something's wrong with your heart. Not necessarily. So understand, being offended is not necessarily wrong in and of itself, but it's also not proof that you're right. So what do we do then? When we're offended, we've got to do some real evaluation, right? Because sometimes being offended could just be proof that you're just not teachable. What do I mean? You can be offended by the right thing and then comforted by the wrong thing. You could easily just say, I, I, here's what happens. I'm offended by a thing, which means let me go elsewhere where, that's, where someone will say or do something that would no longer offend me. But what if the things they're doing offend God? So, so this is why you can't just go, listen, for a lot of us, this is kind of the code that we live by. If I'm offended, we just intellectually and lazily go, must be wrong then because I'm offended. As opposed to, let me stop and figure out why am I, why am I offended? But is there something, because maybe, just maybe, there may be a heart idol that just got crushed. Let me tell you, getting your idols crushed is very offensive. It's very offensive. Things that you have actually worshipped privately or publicly as God and it's not. And then when things happen to crush that idol, you will feel offended. So what, what's your muscle memory like when you feel offended? Do you do the same thing every time you're offended? Pushing away, running away, don't want to deal with this, don't want to hear this, doubling down on all the ways that I've been hurt before, so now I let that color this, 
So I've been offended over here. Maybe those were legitimate things that were offensive. But now I'm here and I feel the same that I felt back then, which means I'm still just as right as I was then. Let me tell you, if this is the way we work and this is the way we function, this is a recipe for spiritual stagnation and quite possibly spiritual desertion. For many of us, we've been so frustrated. and All we know now is the language of offense. We don't even know the language of being taught anymore. And that's why when Jesus looks at this, he sees their heart. He knows exactly where they are. And you look at verses 64 and 65. He says, but there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the ones who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. This is another hard truth. Like Jesus responds to their complaining and their frustration and their confusion with another or repeating another hard truth. What is he really teaching? Jesus is teaching that God is sovereign over even over evil and unbelief. That like unbelief and evil, they don't happen outside of the very reach of God. He's never surprised by anything. He's never taken aback in that way. He, he is completely in control. And he repeats this same truth to these, what you might call fair weather fans, kind of fair weather disciples. Uh, the same truth he's been stating over and over again. Go back to what we talked about last week, John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Every time Jesus states this truth, the hearers respond with unbelief or skepticism or offense. Every time he brings this up, this hard truth, he said it earlier in 36, you've seen me yet don't believe. They grumble. He responds, everyone the Father's given me will come to me. We see it again in 44. We see it again in 64 and 65. Even, we even see him hint at it in verse 70 with Judas. Jesus sovereignly chose Judas despite the fact that he was being used by the devil and eventually betraying Jesus. What is he showing us? That everything, everything, evil plots, evil plans, your very belief or unbelief is actually completely controlled by him. Hard truth to understand, hard truth to make sense of it all. And yet, the worst thing we could do is desert because we don't get it. Jesus is saying that in battling spiritual desertion in our own hearts, we can find comfort in God's sovereignty even over evil and even over Unbelief. This is why the spiritual des desertion of those who have been strong in the faith, when somebody who's been really faithful and been an incredible, maybe a hero of yours or a mentor of yours or somebody that meant a lot to you, if they ever desert or walk away from the faith, this is why it can be so damaging. It can be so damaging to us because we'll start thinking, well, they were so strong and they fell away. My faith isn't nearly as strong, so why bother? I mean, I, I trusted them. They led me to the Lord and they showed me great examples and, and they've preached great sermons and they sang great songs and we had such good small group time and they were generous and they helped me in all these different ways. And now they're not following. So I don't know that I can follow. See, that's the danger when we start making our faith predicated on the faith of others. 
Again, that's not what our faith is supposed to be based on. That's why Paul said things like, follow me as I follow Christ. And so when, when you see these folks or many folks who get to this place, it's hard because when difficult things happen, a close friend or a loved one betrays you or turns away from Jesus, somehow we're still supposed to think, okay, but, but I have to believe God is still sovereign. According to Ephesians 1.11, he still works all things after the counsel of his will. Or back in Daniel 4, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? But when we don't truly believe the right things about Jesus, when we don't understand and believe the right things about who God is, then our faith is powerless against hard truths. You realize that? There's a way in which your faith is useless when hard truths pop up. There's a way in which however you're practicing your faith or what it is that, you're, that comprises your faith is useless against doubt, is useless against disappointment, and then we fall into the temptation of desertion. That's what happened here. Look at verse 66. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Well, where did they, how did they get there? Hearing hard truths that they disagreed with, hearing hard truths they couldn't understand, hearing hard truths that just didn't make sense, hearing hard truths that offended their very cultural sensibilities, national sensibilities, whatever theological thoughts they had, whatever philosophical thoughts they had. They kept hearing so many things that disagreed with what they thought and how they felt, and they got to a place where they said, I can't follow this guy anymore. I'm done. And so they did. And they bounce. And you see this number. We don't know what the number was, but we see this, this, this certain number. Here's the thing. Their foundation for their truth was themselves. Y'all, we often fall into this place where the foundation for how we see truth is ourselves. Like we never really come to a place where there's this objective court of arbitration that kind of dictates for us what actually is true. We kind of determine what is true for us. This is why, we've said this before, this is why it's dangerous. There's a phrase that we use that in some ways I absolutely think is helpful and in other ways I think is very hurtful. This is where this whole your truth kind of thing is, can be very dangerous. I don't, and this, does that offend you? No, I'm just kidding. But here, here's, here's, here's the thing. There's something about that. Subjectively, your truth is necessary. People can be in a situation, and how they experience that is very different, and so they need to be able to share their account of what is true, right? So how you feel about a thing and what's happening emotionally, those things are necessary. Those things are subjective. But it's very dangerous when you start applying your truth to things that are objective, it's very dangerous because by, by definition, your truth means that thing can't be objective. There may be one thing that happened and one thing that was intended, but all I know is how I heard it and what I thought about it, so that is now my truth. And here's the thing. When you, when you get to the place where you are starting to take things that are objectively true about who God is, what God's character is, what his nature is, what his mind is, what his very words are, when that's just relegated to your truth and your truth and your truth, you no longer know who God is anymore. As a matter of fact, we get to that place where we start looking at God that way, my truth, your truth. It can be damaging and possibly damning on matters of objective issues. The character of God is not a matter of your truth. It's his truth. 
The mind of God is not about your truth. It's his truth. What you expect of God is not even necessarily your truth. It's his truth. Why? Because he reveals himself to us and says, this is who I am. You need not create new expectations for me. I tell you who I am. Which is why Jesus looks at his disciples after watching all these people run off. Wish I could have seen just like the setting of how that works, right? Because it probably was this mass exodus of folks going, he talking crazy, y'all, we out. And all of a sudden he looks at the 12 and goes, y'all leaving too? And he's not asking, we said this before, Jesus is never asking questions to gather information. He knows everything. He's testing them so that they can actually start to dig deep and cling more tightly to this faith that they're professing. We said this last week, be really careful when your declaration is louder than your demonstration. And so here they are. This is your opportunity to demonstrate what you claim and what you say you believe. Are you guys leaving too? It's interesting when you look at uh, the, the, the response here, you look at Peter, the bold one. You look, when you look throughout the life of Peter, and we've done this before, and you just see his personality and kind of who he is. Peter is Even when Peter doesn't have it all together, he's going to stand up and say it. So he's, they're like, well, are you guys getting ready to run too? And he goes, to whom will we go? Now, th- this is such a powerful thing. If you, you want to hear somebody preach a sermon out on you, I can get Keenan Nix to come up here right now. He would preach this house down just on that verse. That alone. Because it's powerful. Because think of what Peter is saying. Now, listen, we're not saying Peter is this bastion, this exemplar that is this, the one that shows the best example of how to follow Jesus. Because we know in a little bit, he'll also be getting ready to desert Jesus, right? But at that, in that moment, he's looking and he's going... Well, okay, you're right. Jesus, there's a lot of things you're saying that we don't get. There's a lot of things that, don't, that, that they just don't make sense to me. There may be even things that you're saying or doing that I might not even agree with. But where else can I go? Then he qualifies that. You have the words of eternal life. See, he, immediately he went, my truth doesn't matter more than yours, Lord. However I feel about this pales in comparison to what is true. And the only thing that is true objectively is what you have declared, not what I feel, not what I experience. It's not negating what I feel and experience, but it should be giving me clear understanding. It should be how I interpret my feelings should actually be a function of what I understand about God, not the other way around. If I interpret God by my feelings, I'm not worshiping God anymore. If I start to interpret my feelings based on who God is, that's when we know how to battle the temptation to desert. And so here you've got Peter looking and and he's saying, we can't go anywhere else. You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter gives this amazing confession. Yep, we're confused, we don't understand. Expectations appear to have been misshapen somehow. Maybe we have erroneously devised our expectations and we might even be disappointed by the expectations that have gone unmet, but we're not going anywhere. And this phrase he uses, again, we have believed and have come to know. This is wild to me. Think of the order. We have believed, then have come to know. That's not how we function as humans. 
I mean, and, and, and rightfully so, right? If, if it's not enough for me to just believe that uh, things are just going to fly without at least knowing or at least knowing somebody else knows how the engine is supposed to run. But, but here, we have believed and then have come to know. We've often allowed our faith to read like the motto of Missouri, the show me state. We adopt the axiom, seeing is believing. But throughout the scriptures, we're constantly reminded that when you submit in faith to the hard truths of God's word, that actually forms a foundation for certain knowledge. In other words, believing is seeing. First we believe, and then somehow we come to know. I'm going to go back to Hebrews again. Look at how the writer of Hebrews puts this. And for those of us who grew up, if you grew up in the King James, you memorized this verse over and over again. Faith is what? The substance of things hoped for and the evidence. Come on, somebody. When you, now, now, here's the interesting thing. The CSB puts it this way, and I love how they put it as well. Now, faith is the reality of what is hoped for and the proof of what is not seen. Whoa. That's not seeing as believing at all. It's like on some level, my faith undergirds my ability to know. That, that's very counterintuitive. It's by definition, not even intuitive at all because typically I need to see something in order for me to build some logical progression to the next thing so I can hold on to that, tie that to this other bank of knowledge I have. But here is very different. On some level, faith has to be ignited in order for me to be able to get to a place where I get real knowledge. What does the word say? The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. Oh, my goodness. So, so I don't see until I believe. I don't see until something happens. You see now why God has to be sovereign over your belief? Because you don't see anything until faith actually happens and it has to be ignited somehow. Not just by your ability to know. Faith yields deeper understanding and deeper knowledge. Here's the best way to put it. You can't know your way to faith, but you can faith your way into knowing. And please understand when we say this, faith is not this reckless leap in the dark. Why? Because our faith is based on God's testimony to his son through trustworthy eyewitnesses. But this just means that you will never arrive at a place of true and complete knowledge apart from believing. Here's, here's a good way to think about it. If your faith is based on faulty expectations, then it will always fail you, much like faith in a faulty airplane will never make it fly. It's not enough to just have a faith in something that, that is not real or the object of your faith matters even more than your faith itself. It's one of the reasons why it's very dangerous, again, within certain Christian movements that where people have kind of uh, created a, a world in which we are supposed to have more faith in faith than faith in God. I'll never forget in the 80s, there was a really popular televangelist that was really well-known within the movement. It's huge kind of prosperity gospel, very dangerous aspect of it. And, and this man, very popular, well-known at the time, would have this idea where he would teach Isaiah 53, which often people do very erroneously, I believe, when they would look at, when they're talking about divine healing, they would quote Isaiah 53 and say, listen, by his stripes, you are healed. 
And he would have these massive demonstrations that his filling up coliseums and, and people would come down and he would say to somebody who is uh, lame or they can't walk or they're sick or they have some type of disease. And he went to this one particular woman and said, do you believe this verse? She said, well, yes, I do. I believe it. I believe it. By his stripes, I am healed. He said, then if you believe these words, why are you still using medicine? If you believe these words, then why are you still, uh, if you believe that he's going to heal you, then why would you not believe this? Now, by the way, the reason why they get there is because Isaiah 53 is, has nothing to do with physical healing. When you read the entire context, you look at the heart of the children of Israel and you look at what has happened. There's a sin sickness in the heart of everyone. And until the Messiah comes to do away with that, we will continue to battle that. But when you create God with your own expectations, the God that will always heal, I will then start to pervert the scriptures to make it say that. And so he started doing that. And this particular woman said, amen, that's right. I can do it. I can do it. I don't need it. I don't need it. She had had epilepsy. I don't need it. I don't need it. About a month later, this woman was found drowned in her bathtub from a seizure. And when they contacted this particular evangelist and televangelist and said, how many people are you teaching this to and how many people are being hurt? His response was, we cannot be responsible for her lack of faith. Because the object of your faith matters far more than your faith. If the object of your faith is faulty, it will never save you. If the object of your faith is erroneous, it will never save you. And when it fails to save you, in those moments where it doesn't, that's when you go, where was God? And then that's when you desert. So you walked away from a God that never really existed, but you thought that, it, that he did. And he's going, no, I'm actually the real God. I've still been here, and I'm still coming after. I still have my arms open. The object of your faith matters more than your faith itself. If the object of your faith is trustworthy, in it you'll find comfort. And look, that's why the cycle of faith, for me, often looks like repetitions of bouts of unbelief countered by God's sovereignty through Jesus. Over and over, something happened, man, my faith is shaking. Man, I don't even know what I believe. Oh, I'm really struggling. Nope, I have to go back to what is true, God's word who Jesus is, the sovereignty of God, the lordship of Christ that causes the most problems for most people when they're tempted with desertion. Honestly, when we're tempted to just run away or we're tempted to like, it, it's not, uh, yes, sometimes there are intellectual problems. I get that, but I think a lot of times we hide behind that. We hide behind, yeah, but my bigger problem, I just can't wrap my head around. It's not our intellectual problems with God or the Bible as often. Sometimes it's our love of our sin that makes us not want his lordship. Other times, it's our love of ourselves and our ways of thinking about God that keeps us from ever fully submitting to him. That's actually very common. When you really think about it, the thing that makes, me so, that makes it so hard for me to fully submit to him is because I'm so in love with, why, with how I've always seen him. I'm so in love with what I've always expected from him. And so because of that, I'm like, Lord, I... I would love to love you, but I'm trying to love this other Lord I made up for you first. Now, if you start looking like that Lord I created, I'm rocking with you. But, but, if, but, but if you continue to diverge and you continue to distinguish yourself from this other thing I've created, I've got a decision to make. And more often than not, I'm going to be prone to follow that one and not you. That's at the root of a lot of our temptations to desert. And it's only after we see Jesus as Savior and Lord that we ever have full assurance knowing that he is truly 
the Holy One of God. I'll close with this. There's three groups here that we see in Scripture. There's three groups we see. When you really look at what we just saw here, you've got the fair weather, kind of fair weather uh, disciples, if you will, because the Scriptures call them disciples that fell away. You got those who are initially interested in Jesus and they follow until he started teaching things they didn't like. Then you've got the second crew, the, the, the Judas types. They seem fully committed to Jesus. You realize no one ever suspected Judas the whole time? I mean, Jesus has made hints. He's like, listen, one of y'all going to betray me. Can you imagine being one of the 12? Like, which one is it? Which one? Okay, and see, they probably would have done what we were going to do. Okay, but which ones are not up on their spiritual disciplines? I ain't heard him praying real well. His prayer grade is low. He probably not really following him at all. I didn't see him give the other day because that's kind of where our mind goes. We look for these external things because you can't possibly know each other's hearts. And Judas is sitting there just like, I don't know who they're talking about. <laughs> you imagine like he had to be nervous because Jesus has said this a couple of times already. It's like, and the crazy thing is you would think that right afterwards, he would have been like, well, Jesus, you're not even going to come say something to me. Like, clearly, you know something, but you're not saying anything. You almost wonder if he had to go, well, I wonder if he doesn't really know everything. Maybe he doesn't. But you got the Judas types, right? Come in. We can play church. We can act like we're fully committed and fully submitted uh, to him and be, and be a betrayer at the same time. And then tragically desert Christ later. And then finally, you've got the Peter types. Imperfect. And imperfectly stumbling your way through, yet he submitted to a faith. He submitted to Jesus, even that, that persevered in spite of really hard teachings. Because they knew who Jesus really was. And they believed in who he said he was. And they committed to following him. Falling in him and following him. Falling in him and following him. Which group do you find yourself in today? Which group will you find yourself in tomorrow? Listen, some of us have been in all three groups at different times. Some of us have walked through that cycle. Some of us have been in a place where like, today, I'm Peter. Tomorrow, I'm Judas. Some of us will never admit that we're Judas. But a lot of us are Judas <laughs> at times. And then, say, and then we'll rarely know or acknowledge the times where we're just a fair weather disciple. I'm rocking as long as I'm loving. That's probably where the majority of us find ourselves. I'm rocking as long as I have it, as long as the things I need are here, as long as the things that I'm longing for are here, as long as the things that I expect from you continue to show up, I'm here. But Lord, don't meet my expectation to find out what happens. See, we, we won't say it, but that's how we live. So where are we today? Like, where honestly are you today? And then when you answer that question, what do you do to combat the temptation to spiritually desert. Honestly, what do we do? The beauty of the gospel is that in the same way that Jesus is looking at Peter and Judas and other folks, he's looking at you, he's looking at me and going, I know the days that you're going to fall in me. I know the days you're going to want to run, else, run elsewhere, run away from me. D -d -d -d. Not, only, not even just desert, but even defect. And there's a difference there, right? I can just desert and just run away. If I defect, I'm leaving to go elsewhere. And he's going, I'm still pursuing your heart. I still love you. I still draw you until breath is out of your body. I continue to love and draw you to me. So there's something about that even where we don't have to just sit and go, okay, I identify which one I am and then just live in shame. 
Why? Because our faith is in the one who is faithful and just to forgive us. Our faith is in the one that is sovereign even over our unbelief. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would that you would give us such a, a deep and overwhelming awareness of ourselves, of our sin, of our biases, of our brokenness in such a way that we don't just sit under the shame of that, but that we would know that this is exactly why you came to live and came to die. You didn't come to save people who have it together. You didn't come to save people who are the most faithful. As a matter of fact, Lord, when we look throughout the scriptures of the Old and the New Testament, we, it is replete with examples of people who have demonstrated faithlessness almost to show us that we can't possibly work our way into your good graces. And so, Father, I pray that even now, each and every heart under the sound of my voice would be broken in the parts of their hearts that don't follow, the parts of our hearts that are not submitting, the parts of our hearts that trust our truth more than your truth. God, will you enable our hearts to respond, enable our hearts to be broken so that our hearts can be healed. Father, we realize that you said, your word says that without faith, it is impossible to please you. And so, Father, I pray that you indeed would enlarge our faith, enable our faith, so that we can respond in a way that looks like repentance and actual restoration. God, I pray that you would uh, allow this to bear itself out <clears throat> not only in our individual lives. I pray that this would bear itself out in our community. I pray that it would bear itself out in ways in which we might be offended by things that ought to be offending us because of our sin that offends you. So God, I pray that we would not trust our feelings alone. I pray that our feelings would be buttressed by your truth, <clears throat> your word, and your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.